In this particular moment, 9 through 11, Paul is really focused on that moral crowd, on that, that religious crowd, that Jewish group of people. He's thinking about their imagination, about their convictions, about their potential objections to what they've read in the first eight chapters or what they've heard read over them in the first eight chapters. And it's important when, when addressing the Jews to keep in mind that Paul is Jewish. And so he is addressing those with whom he identifies with. He is Hebrew, and he wants his fellow Hebrews to be saved. He wants them to understand. He wants them to believe that Jesus is Lord. And so he is writing with that motivation, not to hurt them or harm them or to exclude them, but to make sure that they understand. That's what he's focused on. But in the middle of this plea, this three-chapter plea, 9 through 11, there is this digression. There is this relevant excursus, if you will. So what's this tangent? What's this digression? Well, the digression is all about the Jews rejecting Jesus, all about the Jews rejecting the gospel. Or as the Apostle John opens up his biography of Jesus, speaking about Jesus as the true light, he says this in John 1, 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. Jesus was Hebrew as well. Jesus steps into this Hebrew world as a fulfillment of all the ancient promises that God had made to the Hebrew people. And yet, by and large, Hebrews, Jewish people, specifically spiritual and religious and political elites, reject Jesus. So John, in the beginning of his gospel, is accounting for this idea that he came into his own and his own people, or came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That, that's a real problem as it relates to us understanding the nature of Jesus in the gospel. Paul's digression then is all about why and how this happens, and how and why that happened. He tees up the tangent at the end of chapter 9, so if you move your eyes, if you're already in chapter 10, to 9, 30 through 31, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. And the tangent then gets a little bit more juicy, if you will. You see, it's not just that Jews rejected Jesus, but Gentiles received Jesus. But why should we care? Have you ever wondered that? Like when you're reading about all of this back and forth about Jews and Gentiles in the ancient first century world, you wonder, why should we care about this? Just look to Jesus, follow Jesus, love Jesus. Why are we getting into this scuffle about what happened and who accepted him and who rejected him at the very beginning of the story? You see, the, but I, I, I want to I take some time to consider that the original reception or rejection of Jesus or of the gospel reveals to us a great deal about the nature of Jesus and the nature of the gospel. And so we're not meant to enter into a 2,000-year-old rift. What we're to do is to try to analyze and understand how this reveals to us the truth and beauty of who God is, which in turn then reveals, I think, why or whether or not we have actually received or rejected the gospel. See, when we get really clear about the gospel, we have to ask ourselves, is that what I believe? When I hear the word gospel, is that what comes to mind? When I think about Jesus, is that the one whom I'm following? And I think this tangent goes a long way in helping us understand that. Because most importantly, what it's going to do is reveal the nature of God, who he is and what he is like. And all of our joys begin and ultimately in that idea. Who is God? What is 
he liked. This is why A.W. Tozer opened up his perhaps most famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with the simple statement that what we think, or rather what comes to your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. And so the question for us is, is our understanding of who God is accurate? Is this who he has revealed himself to be? So what we learn about God, about the gospel, and our own faithfulness will be exposed, I think, through these original responses. And I think that's what a good tangent does, if you'll allow me like an English major moment, right? A good tangent takes you somewhere, perhaps unexpected, so that when you arrive to the final destination of what the original intent, what the original point is, you'll actually enjoy it more or understand it better. So a tangent is not meant to take you somewhere that doesn't matter. It's meant to take you somewhere so that you actually know when you have arrived at your destination, when you've actually settled at the point of the matter. You'll enjoy it more. You'll see it more clearly. And through this tangent, I think we'll learn at least three things, and it's how we'll order our time this morning. We'll see the deception of knowledge and understanding, and then we'll see the sufficiency of grace, and lastly, we'll see the reversal of expectations. So we'll see the deception of knowledge and understanding. That's where we'll begin. And then we'll move into the sufficiency of grace. And lastly, we'll understand this reversal of expectations that we will have been navigating the entire time. So let me uh, read the text for us. Romans chapter 10, verse 18 through 21. Pray, and then we'll get to work. Romans 10, 18 through 21 says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For... Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, verse 19 says, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And so we'll neither make heads nor tails of it unless you, by your grace, reveal it, show it, make it plain to us. And so it's to that end that we desire to be available and curious today. Who are you? What are you like? What is it that you are speaking to us in this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in? Father, help us to remember afresh today that the gospel is not just good news in our past conversion, in our future life, but the gospel is the framework by which we're meant to see all things. Jesus is the way in which we are not just to be saved and to live in eternity, but he is our Lord and Savior right now, the second And so wherever we're disbelieving that or misunderstanding that, would you apply that to our hearts today? You're a really good father that knows exactly what your daughters and sons need. And so I pray with my simple mind and simple words that you would make the brilliance of your gospel plain and the power of your glory heavy on our hearts. That it would liberate us from sin, it would wash away our shame, and it would give us joy. You are a God who loves us. Help us to be a people, a family that believes that. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we work through, through the, 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 each movement, what we're going to do is kind of comb through the text. We'll take a little bit more time in the, the front end of it, and we won't need as much time to look at all of the uh, points as we go. But 
As we make these observations through the first pass, we're going to be looking through a Jewish lens, the way in which they may have seen this or understand this. So what is Paul saying in this tangent about the Jewish people, or what's he showing us about their rejection of the gospel? And as we comb through for the first time, a structure begins to emerge through these four verses. Paul's addressing objections and excuses as to why Jews could have possibly rejected or missed the gospel. He's raised an objection, maybe not necessarily because someone texted him while he was writing, but because he was like, I know what you're thinking. I know where your mind's going to go when you hear this. And so first he talks about their knowledge, then their understanding, and lastly he'll talk about their obedience. So this is how he organizes these first four, or these, these four verses and how we'll pass through it the first time. So look again at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, then he quotes here, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So one objection that Paul anticipates uh, is that Jews just never heard the gospel. So in other words, the reason that they rejected it is because they never heard it, someone may say. In other words, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah because they never heard that he was the Messiah. It seems like a logical, perhaps, excuse or reason why. And this would seem fitting uh, in the previous section, an important thing to acknowledge, because Paul has just said what? Faith comes through hearing. So then the objection of it, well, maybe they just never heard. Maybe they rejected because they never heard. However, Paul responds to this objection as he's so good at doing by going to the Bible. He goes to Psalm 19, and I hope we're picking up on this. Paul does this all the time, and the Spirit of God is inspiring him to do it all the time. He faces an objection, and in his mind he goes, what's the Word of God have to say about that? This is so instructive to us. So in the middle of the tangent, let's take a little tangent. We should be doing that. We should be a people, when we face a problem, not what I feel, what do I think, what would my mom expect, what does my husband, my wife, my children, my community, the first thing that a follower of Jesus says, what does he say about it? And, and if when we open the scriptures, we don't know where to go, this is the beauty of community. Y'all, I don't know where to go. I'm, I'm not making heads or tails about which house to buy or what to do about this medical need or what to do about my mother or what to do about my child, right? I can't find in the scriptures any help. Have you faced this before? See, we are a people who do what the Apostle Paul, I think, is modeling for us and what Jesus does in Matthew 4. It's written. It's written. This is what the Word of God says. May we be such a people. So the tangent within the tangent over. We'll get back to our main tangent. Any following? Okay. Uh, Psalm 19. The King David celebrates something, and he quotes it in part here in Romans 10. The fullness of those two verses in verses 1 and 2, where Paul takes out part of it, says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So all of creation, in other words, announces the reality of God, of who he is. And David uses a bit of what's called anthropomorphism, right? You know what that is? When you look at an inanimate object and sort of personify it, give it language. So, so he says he imagines that the sky is making a proclamation. He is imagining that the day is speaking words and that the night is revealing knowledge. Paul uses this passage then to explain the ubiquity or the widespread and far reach of the gospel at the time. He's not saying that if you look at the skies, you will know Jesus, but as much as the skies spread over the earth, so has the gospel spread over the ancient world, meaning that the Jewish world was not ignorant. This is the point Paul is making by going to uh, Psalm chapter 19. The good news of Jesus was spread out in the ancient world like the glory of God has spread out over the day and the night sky. So he responds to that first objection, the Jews knew the gospel. 
He moves from that objection of knowledge to an objection of understanding. Maybe they heard it, but didn't get it. You've been there before? There's a difference, right? I have heard plenty of things. Whether or not I understand them is a completely different story. You can talk to my wife. There are plenty of things that she clearly has said, and I'm like, I don't understand. Can you please help me? Right? There's a huge difference. Look at verse 19. But I ask, Paul now is, is back, did Israel not understand? He does the same thing. First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Okay, someone might say, so the Jews knew the gospel, but maybe they rejected it because they didn't understand the gospel. Paul addresses this excuse by going to Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, which reads in full, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me, God says, to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not or who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So Israel has sinned against God, and Moses is near his death. This is one of his last addresses of the Hebrew people, and Moses brings up the fact that they have rejected God. So Israel chose idols over God. This is what God is saying. You've made me jealous by going to other gods, and they knew exactly what they were doing. They understood what they were doing. In response, God even begins to move in his plan to welcome, he says, those who are no people that the Gentiles who have no understanding are going to be included. Spiritually speaking, he says that the Gentiles are a foolish nation. So Paul says not only then, here's kind of what he's getting at, this this twofold point. Not only did the Jewish people understand, just like they did in Moses' day, but also complete understanding is not the means of salvation, as the inclusion of the Gentiles proves. We'll explore that more in a minute. So he's including Gentiles in order to expose that understanding, the Jews did have understanding, but they actually didn't need it. Kind of interesting. So the Jews understood the gospel. Finally, from the objection of knowledge and understanding, Paul moves to obedience. Here's where he answers the question more directly about why they rejected Jesus. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So for the question of obedience, Paul then goes to Isaiah. Now let's just step back a little bit and just take another pulse of what Paul is doing. It's brilliant. You see, the the Hebrew scriptures, or what we might call the Old Testament, is divided into three sections the law, the prophets, and the writings. And what Paul does is he samples from all three of those sections in his answer to this question. It's quite beautiful, actually. He he goes, for the prophets, he goes to Isaiah. And for the law, he goes to Deuteronomy. And for the writings, he goes to the Psalms. And in Isaiah's uh, vision, he gives this vision of people, the Jewish people for whom God is extending grace, yet they reject God's grace through what? Their disobedience. Paul has said that the Jews knew the gospel, they understood the gospel, and so logically, the only possible reason that they rejected it is because they did not live in light of what they knew and what they understood. They did not live in light of what they knew and what they understood. See, as much as there is a difference between knowing something and understanding something, there is also an ocean of distinction between understanding something and living as if it is true. Now, how is this possible? They had knowledge, they had understanding, but not obedience. Well, because knowledge and understanding 
are very deceptive. Very deceptive. See, knowledge and understanding do not save. They are not transformational. They convince us that we actually don't need to be saved because we know so much and understand so much, we don't need to do anything about it. We are elevated by what we think and what we understand and what we know. But it's only the scriptures teach us that when you believe and trust and build your life on what you understand, that obedience and salvation are even possible. See, it's a failure to obey and to submit is why they rejected the gospel. What we learn then about the gospel is that it is rejected by the least likely candidates, the people we'd least expect to reject the gospel, the ones who had full knowledge, full understanding, miss Jesus. People born with a pedigree of religion and law, with knowledge and understanding, often build their lives on those things, and they miss the God of grace. So that's the deception. What's the sufficiency of grace? Well, see, when we go back through the passage, we see that Paul is actually using the Gentiles as sort of a mirror to communicate something to his Jewish readers. You see, there are actually two things going on in the Jewish frustration and rejection of the gospel, two ways that they are deceived. First and foremost, they are deceived about the good news itself, that Jesus is Lord, that that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of all the ancient promises of God, that salvation comes only through him. Something we'll sing about in just a minute, that all of his promises are yes and amen through Christ. This is what they've missed. Because the law was their Lord. A second deception, though, is about the Gentile inclusion in the gospel project. See, in their sin of entitlement, Jews had begun to fancy themselves as superior to their neighbors, as a unique people, and they believed that they were different and more deserving than the Gentiles. In fact, the only ones truly deserving because their knowledge and understanding began to create entitlement and superiority. This is why the tangent is so powerful. See, Paul juxtaposes Gentile people with Jewish people in verses 19 and 20. Look at it again. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Paul goes to Deuteronomy and Isaiah like deep cuts in the Old Testament scriptures to show that God's providential plan to welcome non-Jewish people into the family of God. This was always his plan. And yet part of the purpose of this inclusion and the timing and the method is to wake up Israel from their slumber of idolatry. He's like, look at these, these Gentiles who don't know anything like you do. They don't have the law like you do. They don't have the history and biography that you do. And they are in the family. They are receiving this good news. God says he wants to use the Gentiles to make his people jealous so that they will receive grace. Why would that happen? Why would the Jews be jealous of the Gentiles in particular? Because they, no, they didn't have that knowledge. They didn't have the same understanding. Everything that that a Jewish person may build their life on is reason why God's accepted them. Now they're looking at their neighbor who loves God and is included in the family. They don't have any of the reasons why I thought I was accepted. Are you tracking with that? This is what Paul is trying to mirror for them. He's trying to tear down this self-sufficiency, this sort of superiority and entitlement. They didn't even seek God. 
They didn't even ask for God. We actually just sang about this. I, I, saw, this, I saw this today in our, in our worship book. When we were singing one of these more rare uh, verses from Great is Thy Faithfulness, that I could not love thee, so blind and unfeeling, covenant prophecies fell not to me. Then without warning, without desire or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. Can you imagine if you worked your whole life chasing after something and then your neighbor got it in a second? You would be so mad. Like if we're just human for a moment, that's really hard. It would wake you up and make you question things. This is what God is doing to the Jewish people. You have this heritage of faith. You think the law is what has brought you close. I'm going to show myself to people who aren't even looking for me. It's going to wreck your world, right? This tangent is beautiful. I wonder if it's waking us up. See, knowledge and understanding deceived the Jews but because grace was sufficient for the Gentiles. It's all they needed. It was all they needed. See, a move of God's grace is actually beyond their knowledge and understanding. That's why they received the gospel. You see, what we learn about the gospel is that it's received by those whom we would least expect. It is rejected by those whom we least expect, and it is received by those we would least expect. See, the more we get into each other's stories about how we became followers of Jesus, we should all be shocked. We shouldn't sit back and go, oh, it makes perfect sense. You seem like a deserving candidate of grace. And you go, really? You are jacked up. How did you get on this team? And then we start sharing our story. You go, wow, me too. That's what it's supposed to be like. So whenever a church family or a group believes that there's a particular pedigree or a kind of person that we're after or a kind of church that we are for, we've messed up. We've begun to build up on some other kind of knowledge or understanding, and, and Jesus tears that down and says, it's by my grace. It's by my grace. In fact, as a church family, we should look around. There is no consistent factor in any of our friendships except for grace. Like the thing that weaves all of us together is grace. Grace is sufficient. So people born into a world of suffering, isolation, without knowledge and understanding, they embrace the God of grace. In fact, if you've ever been around someone who truly does not get religion, has just like bumped into Jesus, right? And they just go, this is spectacular. This is amazing. They have none of that religious upbringing that I so, so often am trapped up by. Well, here's like the point in the poem that you've got to understand before you get into the team and the thing you've got to experience. Sometimes people like fall over backwards into grace and they are actually the most like wonderful people to be around because they never had the law, right? They never had religion. They never had the thing that I believe I am such a self-righteous or self-puffed up or a self-made person within the spiritual realm. And this person's like, Yo, I'm so happy to be on the team. I definitely don't belong here. Can I tell you more stories about why I shouldn't be here? Right? That's the kind of person that all of a sudden is starting to show up in the church in Rome. And Paul's like, here's why they're here. Here's why you Jewish people are upset. And it's awesome. It's awesome because it's showing us something about who God is. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put these two lessons together for us about those that rejected and received were both the least likely candidates he puts these lessons together and he says, what has in fact happened in and through the preaching of the gospel is a twofold shock. First, those who weren't even looking for salvation from Israel's God have stumbled into it, while those who were only too eager for it are missing out. This is the beauty of a good tangent. 
It shows us the gospel is rejected by those we least expect and received by those we least expect. And it gives us a clearer vision of what the gospel actually is. Some reject the good news because they're deceived by knowledge and understanding. Some receive it immediately because grace is sufficient. Do you see, is this rejection, in this rejection and reception, in the deception of knowledge and the sufficiency of grace, the tangent teaches us that the gospel reverses our expectations. Why? Because our reception of the gospel is not predicated upon our knowledge and understanding by the grace and sovereignty of God alone. I wonder if this sounds like the gospel that you believe in. I wonder if your expectations for your life and for your community and the people in your life is holding this sort of dichotomous nature of the gospel in tension. Do you expect your knowledge or what you understand to be the power that leads you to a really good life, that conquers your problems and your pains and your relationships Or do you trust grace? Is it up to you? Or is it up to God? What is God right now tearing down by pointing at your neighbor who loves Jesus, who has received his grace, and you go, I thought I was in because of this. And it's actually because of him, because of his grace. This week our group chatted through Mark 10. I know we were supposed to be in the Psalms. I'm sorry. Forgive me. As we discussed, I realized that in Mark 10, this dichotomous like paradigm is really plain in this text. See, two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, they've been walking with Jesus for years. They know him. They know the law. They had tons of understanding. In fact, in Mark 10, Jesus has just predicted his death for a third time. So he's put the gospel on repeat for them. They know the law. They know the God of the Bible. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die for a third time. In fact, they are on the road going to Jerusalem. And on top of everything else, they know and understand that Jesus, through his suffering, is going to bring his kingdom. This is what he's been teaching them over and over again. And yet, it's really clear that the disciples are missing something. They demand that James and John do, through their mom, by the way. Mark is really kind. He he takes their mom out of the story. But they sent their mom to go talk to Jesus. It's really clear they're missing something, and they demand seats of power in Jesus' kingdom. James and John ask, can we sit one at the left and one at the right when you come into your kingdom? Seemingly, they want positions of power over their fellow disciples. Because the disciples, the other ten, were somewhere else. And they come and they pull Jesus aside with their mom. So they're like stacking the deck. They're getting alone time with him. They're bringing their mom, who probably makes, I don't know, like has a great relationship with Jesus, like even more than, than them softens them up, and James and John, essentially, what do they reveal? They reveal that they are judgmental over their fellow disciples and that they are entitled to seats that they are not. They reveal judgmentalism, and they reveal entitlement. Contrary to these two disciples, the next scene is a man named Bartimaeus, Mark 10. He's blind, likely never been with Jesus, never never met him, and it's really unclear how much he knows and understands. But it is particularly obvious, I think, that he has a pretty simple or basic spiritual education. So he must assure, most assuredly doesn't have a full breadth of the, of the law or of the gospel yet. He would have been uneducated, nor would he have known about the pending death of Jesus that he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He wasn't around when Jesus kept predicting this with clarity. And yet Mark shows us that rather than judgment and entitlement, Bartimaeus dis- demonstrates dependency and humility. He does this by simply, when Jesus asks him, what can I do for you? He says, can you just give me my sight? 
After he cries out for him, Son of God, have mercy on me multiple times. He doesn't ask for a seat of power. He doesn't ask for the left or the right. He asks for his sight to be restored. You see, it's pretty basic. It's pretty fundamental. Or perhaps more to the point, what he really asks for is mercy. Have mercy on me. What do we learn from Mark 10? I think a couple of principles emerge that connect us to Romans 10. When we are deceived by knowledge and understanding, we grow very entitled and judgmental. Everywhere we look is someone to compare ourselves with. So one of the ways that we assess our own lives, the way you assess your life as to whether or not you are believing the gospel is to consider whether or not you are growing in entitlement and judgment. Not just over your fellow brothers and sisters, but over your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord too. Are you growing in judgment and entitlement? Do you regularly compare your life with others? Are you often jealous because someone else got something that maybe you are working really hard for or that you desire? Are you constantly critical about people's decisions simply and if not only because they're different than yours? See, when we think we have special knowledge and understanding, it always breeds comparison and contempt. Why? Because we don't always get what we want. Someone else may have it. We don't become who we want to become. When we see somebody else who we know didn't work as hard as us because nobody works as hard as us. And right there, it's revealed that we think the way that a good life happens is because we work hard. So we see this in the lives of the Jewish people. We see this in the the way that James and John approached Jesus. When we think we have special knowledge and understanding, it breeds judgment, contempt, and comparison all the time. So I think it's really important for us to ask, does this describe our life? It's really hard these days, too. You know how much research is being done about social media and our tendency to compare ourselves? You could be having a really good day. And you go on Instagram and you go, I'm a terrible person. I'm so bad at life. I must be. It doesn't even matter why you thought you were having a good day. The act of comparison, looking at someone else and seeing that they have something. If I believe that my life is made of fulfilled pleasure and of knowledge and understanding, then someone will always look like they're having more fun than me, and they always know more than me or getting something that I don't have. And it will lead to judgment, contempt, frustration, pain, and shame. The way we know this in Mark 10, by the way, is the disciples got really angry at James and John. It's classic. You should read this story today. I don't think they're angry because James and John asked for it. I think they're angry because they asked for it first. They're like, oh, that was a really good idea. We should have got our mom, too. We should have got our mom to come and ask, right? They actually start bickering and warring like it's Twitter live right there. Knowledge and understanding deceive us believing that we are entitled and that other people are not, and so we judge them. God, protect us and help us in our judgmental hearts. The other lesson that we learn is that when we abide in the sufficiency of grace, the the expression of the fruit of that life is dependency and humility. We live with faith. We discern in ourselves and in others whether or not we're living our lives and building our lives on the real gospel when we're actually becoming more dependent and more humble. Now, hear me well. I am not by nature a humble person. I, I have a ton of areas in front of my, my wife, but the language that my wife has really helped me with is I can look back over the past 10 years and just go, I am not as arrogant as I was. 
I don't think I'll ever be able to say I'm totally humble, but I can at least say I'm more humble today than I was yesterday. And, and that, that's not, that's not in, in any way to puff me or anybody else up. It's to just say, look at God's grace and his kindness in moving in this direction. So we could actually pursue humility. In fact, one of the only qualities that Jesus says he's going to pro- promise his people is humility. He promises, take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. He said, I'm going to make you this way. Are you becoming more humble? Are you becoming less judgmental in a world that is built on judgment right now? I really am convinced one of the ways that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to stand up and out right now is that when everyone is judging someone, we're just like, man, God's grace is really good. If you want some of that, come this way. Right? Everybody's retweeting everybody's thing and just going, here's what's wrong with it. I do this too. What if we were the people that didn't judge people but just loved them, extended grace to them? It doesn't mean we're not discerning. It doesn't mean we don't love the truth. It, it just means that we don't think knowledge and understanding make us better than them. This judgment falling away in your life is entitlement. Are you increasingly aware of your need for mercy and grace and forgiveness and help? Is grace sufficient for you? I think one of the primary markers of dependency and humility is gratitude. Some of you are some of the most thankful people I've ever met. When I bump into you, you almost start every sentence with, I'm just so grateful for, and you fill in the blank all the time. Those kinds of people, you kinds of people, are infectious. Because gratitude does something. Gratitude admits need and admits that you can't supply that need, but someone else did. That's dependency and humility. It fosters gratitude within our hearts. It's a way of decentering ourselves and acknowledging the mercy of God in our lives. See, when we're grateful, we are acknowledging and recognizing how great our need is and how great our God is at the same time. We know we're not special. We know we don't have more knowledge and understanding. That means we're entitled to something. Everything is grace to us. Everything is grace to us as followers of Jesus. Remember, God even said, in verse 21, he says, all day long I have held out my hands. Think about this. He's saying that to people who are about to disobey him, about to reject him. And he knows it. And what does he do? All day long I hold out my hand. Is that your vision of God? All day long I hold out my hand. He's ready to receive you. He's ready to welcome you, just like he did Bartimaeus. Son of God, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes to him, what can I do for you? Would you make me well? And he says, yes, your faith has made you well. My grace is sufficient for you. See, ultimately what lays at the center of this is a vision of God. A God who is not enticed by human understanding and knowledge and go, okay, you're right, I do owe you, you're so smart. But he is also not repelled or repulsed by sin. He draws near to us in his kindness. And so whether the Lord is revealing to you now a sense of entitlement because of what you believe you you should get from him or a sense of shame about how broken you are, he extends his hand to both of you all day long. Just grab it. This is what's so frustrating, is that there are self-righteous people in our midst, or recovering self-righteous people, right? And there are those who had no reason to be self-righteous. They knew how bankrupt they were, and the Lord extends the same hand of grace to each of us. You see, we're both here because of the same reason. God's grace. He's not obligated to embrace us. He's not afraid to embrace us. He does it by grace. 
Something that happens here that I think is important to note, something that theologians call the sovereignty of God. One of the reasons we can trust in God's grace is that God is sovereign. God can only promise his grace as much as he is in control to give it. And so when the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over everything, that means that his grace can reach anywhere, right? Those both have to be true. Writer uh, David Tripp put it this way, God's promises of grace are sure because his sovereignty is complete. In other words, no matter what, no matter where, no matter who, when God reaches out, he can reach you. And he can reach your neighbor. And he can reach your friend. And he can reach your colleague. He can reach any of us. That means no matter what you know, you can know God. And that grace is sufficient. And no matter what you understand, you can understand God. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. No matter what you have done, you can be reconciled to God. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. And you can obey and build your life on that truth, on that grace, because it's not going anywhere. Your knowledge will come and go. Your understanding will come and go. Your obedient life will come and go. His grace is sure and eternal and a sure foundation to build your life on. When we look more closely at Mark 10... This reversal leaps off the page. See, James and John are insiders. They've got cultural power. They've got audience with Jesus. But Bartimaeus is an outsider. The disciples are even described spatially. They are walking on the road with Jesus, and Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. And yet, when Bartimaeus speaks to Jesus and Jesus makes him well, He simply says, go on your way. In other words, get on the road. And then Mark even says, and he followed Jesus on the road. The gospel reverses things. The ones on the inside, James and John, are now bickering with all the disciples going, oh, why can't we ever figure this out, right? And Bartimaeus is on the road walking with the Savior of the world. The one who was on the inside is now on the outside, and the one who was on the outside is now on the inside. You see, the gospel humbles the proud who have knowledge and understanding. And the gospel lifts up the humble who lack knowledge and understanding. It reverses our expectations through the gift of God's outstretched arm through grace. See, that's the curious thing about grace, isn't it? It seems like a tangent. It seems like it's not the point. It's a nice thing that we get along the way, but it's not the point. It seems like it's leading us away from power and truth and wisdom, but in actuality, it leads us away from depending on ourselves for everything. Grace leads you to God. So don't be deceived by what you know and understand. Rather, be grateful for his grace. Let's pray. Father, we do need your help in this. We need your help because left to ourselves, we think we are acceptable because we know stuff and understand things and even perform or act a certain way. And so we just want to acknowledge, we want to admit, help my friends, help myself myself to admit, this knowledge is deceptive because this knowledge is not our savior, you are. So may we be centered on that, may we build our lives on this grace, may we be grateful for it, in Jesus' name, amen.